Hello, I'm Mitch Owens, the host of The Adiasthete. On this episode, I'm joined by Louis Benesch, a leading French landscape designer, member of the AD100, and a man that I've been proud to know and admire for many years. His new book, 12 Gardens Around the World, published by Gorkov Gradinego, takes readers on a global journey of inspiring paradises and points beyond for clients ranging from AD100 interior designer Jacques Grange to industrialist Pierre Berger to style tycoon Francois Pinault. Whether simple or complicated, stately or laid back, each spiritually fulfilling acreage in the book embodies what Benesh calls juste, or appropriateness. As the design writer Eric Janssen explains in the introduction, Benesh's goal is always to create gardens that look as natural as they can be, when, in point of fact, nothing could be more artificial. We also talk about Benesh's childhood passion for trees, his fascination with native plants, and his determination never to create a garden without factoring in how it should be maintained. I hope you enjoy the show. Louis, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast at our distances, you in Paris and me in upstate New York. Before we get started talking about the new book and um, other topics, I'd really love to know how the pandemic is affecting your work, Um, because I know you have people you work with out in the field, um, at properties. How are you navigating that? At the moment, life is back to normal on, on my way of life. So it meaning in, uh, I'm visiting gardens and I'm traveling in France. Uh, the only I'm affected for American gardens, mm-hmm. for example, but I'm traveling all over Europe at the moment. Even if I've been to Switzerland and they are doing some restriction, but I was not restricted. I'm going regularly in Belgium at the moment without any trouble. And I'm going far away from Brussels in the countryside where I'm not anxious a second. Selfishly, uh, where am I going? I'm going to Spain, but not in the worst places because I'm not going Catalonia. But I have some friends coming back from there telling me that it was not that crazy. Mm. And so life is normal and I'm traveling a lot again in France, taking trains, uh, which are crowded. And life, generally speaking, seems to be okay. Of course, uh, the, uh, the lockdown period was a bit different. So I have a few things which were late, but I have plenty of new projects. So I would say that I'm not personally affected. And generally the companies who are working outside are the less stressed Mm. uh, companies because people are not necessarily touching each other and and so things are going on and even during the lockdowns some of the gardens were going on but myself i was not able to travel then so i direct (laughs) directed one plantation and i would never do it again through (laughs) thanks to videos and the result is not totally uh, satisfying 
perfectly repairable. I'm belong, belong, uh, I belong to some privileged profession mm. in that kind of situation. How many gardens are you working on now? I would say 15. And when I'm saying 15, it's things which are really ending and things which are starting and things which are in their planting period. Mm. And as you know, I'm taking time some in some cases for gardens. But I have one thing in Paris because it's small, which is going to be finished. I think before this winter, I mean for this winter, uh, but most of the other places are sort of more long-term uh, work. And also all those places are building sites, even in restoring. And so there is a bit of delay on, on the building point of view, yes, it was the, the day before yesterday, I was in the Perche in a place where I was hoping to do some planting this fall, which I'm not going to be able to do straight away mm. b- because there is delays on, on, on the building point of view. And, um, and also I have things I'm just starting to think about, which I'm counting in this, uh, in this amount. You know what I like so much about your book? You said you were just starting out thinking of gardens, projects that you're working that are just starting. One of the things in your book, 12 Gardens Around the World, is a comment made in the foreword of whenever you plan a garden, you're already thinking about who is going to be taking care of this. So there's a really important practical aspect. It's not just pretty. It's about how is it going to remain pretty. Exactly. And um, so, generally speaking, for every kind of gardens, I'm thinking uh, strongly to the structure. And what makes a garden lovely on pictures and things are less important to me because I know that they are more cosmetic and they will need more work probably. And again, to go back to the patch garden I was talking, I was uh, two days ago there, I realized that because of the owners, not because of me, there's just one gardener at the moment, but it's really time to make his little team a bit bigger. And he has been doing most of the work. We didn't work with companies on the planting point of view. And this summer, being alone, he had a lot of trouble to give water. We had a rather dry summer on this big property to go from one place to the other on the watering point of view. But generally speaking, I'm doing gardens, knowing perfectly well what will be the human capacity to look after it straight from the beginning. And I'm doing some gardens where there is always some maintenance in the place, but where the maintenance is going to be the lightest possible, which means using trees. And when the the space is open, uh, to make it as light as possible. Now, the new book, you have 12 gardens all around the world, three in America. Um, And the one that I had not known about and was really impressed by was the garden at the church in New Orleans. It's funny, yes. It was a a discussion with my... She she died uh, in December. 
with, with my partner and she wanted me to put that garden in the book while I, I was not wishing to have it myself because it's a bit boring to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, but it's true that it was a, a rather specific and extremely nice adventure. It was paid by fundraising. The initial fundraising was the Getty Foundation, but they stopped because of their uh, financial problems they had after Katarina. But it's a bit boring, and it's not a total success. And it's <laughs> one of the ga- no, and it's one of the garden. I'm sad not to be able to visit more, because uh, again, babies needs a bit of uh, an eye sometimes. And uh, some of my choices were, which I never do, generally speaking, but quite conceptual in the way that it's surrounded only by American and possibly Louisiana plants, while the square gardens, I mean, the the more formal shapes, which I issued of many of uh, the 18th century, French quarters uh, design I saw, through books and also in reality in the place are planted with plants which were supposed to be imported by the bloody French or the bloody Spanish people. Yes. And I, I just planted some European, supposedly European, initial fruit trees. For example, I planted the popo in the American belt, but I planted some European plums apricots, peaches, pears, apple. And for example, the pears didn't work well. The apple was a disaster, so it turned into, <laughs> it, it has been turning into a crab apple. And the only tree which is really happy in New Orleans is our, which I wouldn't have thought of, olive trees, quince, and uh, also, stupidly, but I considered them as being brought in America through the European arrival, uh, which are uh, the citrus and lemon um, and uh, orange trees, which are Chinese initially, which are not European plants. But so the fact of wishing to stick to that idea of Europe and America, the American side is working better while I was, <laughs> no, no, but I'm sad on, for two reasons for the, the American side is I don't want to have big trees in that garden because Katerina has been wrecking everything because all the bigger tree fell on the next door houses. I mean, it has been a disaster. So I didn't want to grow anything tall which is going to be the case apart from the phoenix I planted in one of the quarters and you have seen some images so you know yes. that there's a phoenix but I'm telling the reason of the phoenix because St. Anthony uh, who is a saint who has been living on that plot uh, legend or nothing has been verified but, but all the, the, the drawings of, of him are under a date plum, a date uh, palm. So there is a date palm, which is a big tree, but I planted next door to that date palm two of the area American trees, which I wanted to be pollarded on the cathedral, which are Magnolia, Grandiflora. I was not wishing to see them free, <laughs> right? Because I, 
No, because I wanted to, to be as flat as possible and not being knocked down by the next bad story of, a, uh, of another storm. Of another storm. And the other thing I'm sad of, so they are not clipped, <laughs> and I, it's a bit sad. I was absolutely wishing to have one of the Louisiana plants, which I simply adore. And we had some in the initial garden, but things were moved because it was full of exotic things. It was full of Chinese palm trees, banana trees. It was a totally different atmosphere. And I wanted to have a very, very nice tea family plant, which is Gordonia lasiantus, which is a Louisiana plant which has almost disappeared in the nature, which is like a sort of camellia uh, with white single flowers blooming in summer. And I couldn't find them. And I'm, I'm sorry, but it has never been planted. And it's sad to me. Now, you, you really have always liked searching for native plants, even if you mix them with cultivated mm -hmm. ones. I, I, you, you always are so intrepid about that, I think. Yes, but it's very funny, you know, a native plant is a native plant where it's born, but it, it's becoming an introduced plant in other places. I'm not going to tell you stories about American plants, but we are using plenty of American plants, of course, in Europe too. But there is one thing is when you reach the shore of a new land, it's always safer for the people who are asking you to work for them to use the native plants because at least you're sure they will work properly. Right. But even, even in those cases, you're doing some little mistakes. And it's very funny. I, spent, I planted this grass in the center of it, which is the Sporobalus heterolepis, because we found at the Chicago University has been helping us on the archaeology of the site. And they did something extremely scientifically. It was called the phyto. Anyway, a way of searching extremely old seeds, extremely old remains of mm. what was there even before the city of New Orleans was built on. And so I've been reusing one of the grass which was there on the site apparently, but I'm using it a lot in Europe, this one myself. So I'm not always using native, native plants in their native land. <laughs> and also it's fun for me. When you are in New Zealand, it's wonderful to be using New Zealand plants. And actually, it's very funny. Most of the plants are extremely mondialisé today, because there is a taste of things from everywhere. And it's something I myself really love. I mean, I think that there is a natural evolution, which is a cultural evolution of exchanges. And so I love exchanges. There is plenty of new laws in new places, which are that we should use only native plants, and which I'm totally anti this sort of uh, thing in uh, artificial mediums, which are gardens. It's not nature a garden. For me, it's a... Uh, a perception of nature through a human eye. So uh, I want to keep it human first. But yet your gardens are also so, I always think of your, your gardens as being so grounded in, in memories and associations and 
there's a, a real magic to what you pull together and how you use them. And your gardens look in general, uh, simple, natural, like they were meant to be. That's very kind of you, but it's, it's uh, a true way of approaching the place is, I'm always saying it, I, I'm quite happy if people are not asking themselves that somebody came and did something. I, I want to try to be with good relation or good currency in between the site, the type of house. I'm saying it in French, to be juste, which is a bit stupid, but um, I'm not going to work in the Connecticut as I do work in France for a chateau. And I'm not going to work for a modern house when I'm working in Italy. It has to be appropriate. Yes, it has to be. I try to be gentle to what I do. <laughs> Again, simple in some cases on a case, on a maintenance case, uh, when people are wishing to have something elaborated or sophisticated, I'm very happy. But I know that I will tell them, I'm sorry, but I, we won't do that if you can't. Uh, but if people have helps, or if people are extremely keen gardeners themselves, you can direct them. And you don't work in, a, in the mountains as you work in, um, in Morocco. <laughs> right. Two, two of which places you have in the book, Garden in Stad and Garden in Morocco. Yes, exactly. Now, you grew up wanting to be in forestry. That's true. It's true. When, when I was a child, I was dreaming, for one reason probably, is that I was born in Paris, which is not very exotic, but my father decided to, was an architect, and he decided before May 68 uh, to leave Paris and to settle himself on an island uh, on the French West Coast, which was, if I'm saying a desert, it's, it's not true but a kind of desert in the way that uh, it's a very flat land with huge salt patches in the north of the island where we are living and where there is sand dunes and no interesting trees. The forestry people in France tried to put some, to retain the sand dunes, some pines as in the land, some maritime pines but then they were not happy, so they have never been growing properly. But it, it was not a natural vegetation. And this island was like any island uh, in the ocean, a windy place with no trees. So when we were going to France, <laughs> out of that island, I was just, when I was seeing a beautiful oak and we had no oaks, for example, on the island, a few live oaks, but no deciduous oaks, I was just kissing them madly and I was turning absolutely mad seeing a forest, a proper forest, <laughs> and proper trees. And the bigger the tree was, the more in love I was. And so it's, it's, it's very funny. I was already a kinky child. And uh, <laughs> so, no, so I was really, really, really impressed by big trees. What is it about trees in particular that you think looking back now 
forestry as a first love. I know that when I look at your gardens, the first thing I notice are these big anchoring trees before I start looking below. Because it's, it's the less maintenance subject in a garden, I would say. Once you planted it and once you've been giving him normal care for the three first years, you, you can, if you don't have the time, you can drop it and it will grow and grow and grow and grow and die. But it's true that um, a big tree, you're never thinking that it's going to die. You think that it's eternal, even if it's not the case. And you don't have to cry when it dies because it's life. But I always, in most of the garden I work, generally speaking, there is already some existing trees. But mm -hmm. it's true that even with those existing trees, I'm always thinking about the next phase, which is not when we are, I'm not going to be there anymore, but when those older trees uh, will have disappeared. And in some of the gardens that you see, there is one, which is an American one, where I'm saying that we replanted some, simply some pies here, some spruces, sorry. Because when I first came, we had some huge trees and then they died. And so I replanted next to the place where they were initially growing, the same amount. And I did it after they died. But generally speaking, what I'm trying to do is to plan that according to the age of something, I should think about the children of the friends I'm working for and for other generations. So everywhere I go, I plant trees. Every, not on a terrace, of course. And I don't like terraces, generally speaking, because it's, it's a totally, totally artificial medium. And because it's not playing ground and it's not, it, it's a joke in many ways. It's not anymore a, a question of gardens. It's a question of plants or decoration. And you're not a, a, a decorative lands, landscape designer, a gardener. No, I don't think it. But when people are talking to me, asking me to decorate their garden, I'm not going to throw them away uh, thinking that I'm better and that it's better to talk about decoration. In some heads, I mean, I had one day, I was invited to do a lecture by French administration. And one of the other landscape gardener was there and has been extremely aggressive to me because I'm doing tiny and private gardens and he was only doing some big public commission using a lot of concrete. <laughs> so he attacked me, but I reacted in a very gentle way, thinking that, saying that there was nothing stupid to do or not to do in life. I mean, I think that everything can be interesting in life. But it's true that the aspect of the gardens, when I'm trying to do something which will suit to the place, to the people, of course, living in the place, and to have mainly through trees or thanks to trees, an eye on the spaces, I wouldn't call it decorative initially. But I'm always ending it by adding three geraniums. <laughs> no, but I loved I loved the thing and I loved the passage in the book where you described your father as, as a, a very smart man, but he couldn't tell a geranium from a fur. But it's true. <laughs> no, and he's still like that. He, 
is is it's very funny because he has been uh, fighting for true ecological vision, probably before it was in the fashion, and he has been fighting on that island where I was brought up to turn into natural reserve some very important spaces, which are those marshes. And again, it's one, one was the first reserve for birds and also for landscape. And his connection uh, with nature has always been sort of an aesthetical vision of structure more than somebody interested by the ecology of the, the place. Mm. But it's because, well, I mean, there is as many characters as you can have on Earth. And without knowing, he knew that it was important. And that's the main thing. Knowledge is extremely helpful, but not always necessary in your choices. Now, why did you not go into forestry? What happened? Oh, that's very simple. It's because uh, we have the stupid things in France, which is, we have universities like anywhere on earth, but we have some schools which are supposed to be more important than universities. And so for administration, we have Lena, for military and mathematician, you have Polytechnicum, and for uh, literature, uh, there is Normal and L'Ecole Normale, which are giving you or tiring. I mean, you are more than doctors in some ways in the French version. And for me, I had to do a school which is called Lago, l'école nationale d'agronomie. For that, you enter by concours, and you have two years of preparation of what we call matsup and matspe, which are preparation to be able to do the competition to enter the schools or this school. And you have to be extremely good at math and physics. And uh, actually, we have that uh, baccalaureate in French, in France, which is an equivalent of what could be, I don't know exactly what it is related to American studies. It would be like, a, a, like your high school diploma. Exactly. So your high school diploma. And at the end of it, I had on 20 on the marks, I had, I think I had seven in physics, which Ooh. was probably my, my best mark in the year. <laughs> and six in mouse, which Ooh. was a bit lower than my best marks in the year. So I was absolutely a disaster in these two things. I've been only doing those two things during all my scholarity, but I've been always clever enough not to understand the same single thing. So even asking for those preparation years to that competition was simply impossible. And it's very funny because my French teacher, and we still have French courses in that year, the year of the exam, uh, was just saying to me, oh, Louis, you have always been done for literature. And I said, thank you, thank you. And it's true that I had my exams thanks to other things, but not the important things to be able to do that cursus. So because of that, more than literature, I started to study law. And I've, I studied law. I started, I wanted to escape many times. 
during my studies, thinking um, it was not totally my cup of tea, but I was kicked to finish what I started, and I, I finished what I started. But the day I had a master, and uh, I made my studies as much turned uh, to nature. So I did a memoir for a French institution, which is called uh, l'Institut de Droit Comparé, which is actually diplomas helping you to be a more international lawyer, but I did it on vegetal protection. And I was said at the time that I was stupid to lose my time doing things which were not of any values. And while today you would be probably a very interested guy because it's true that it's a kind of law which is very important today, but which was not, and I'm not that old, but it's very funny how much time has, has changed in 40 years. Well, you're very, very happy being in a world of plants. I mean, I, I, I can see you from your childhood on that you were, you were going to end up here anyway. Oh, yes, probably. I still have the feeling I'm saved because the more I'm aging, the more I'm lost in the world I'm living. But hopefully I have these branches to hold me. <laughs> no, it's very funny. And I still simply adore what I do. Uh, I think I'm, I'm really privileged to have uh, the pleasure of touching leaves and soils and, uh, and receiving rain and sun. And uh, no, I love that. I'm still amazed by a flower and I'm still uh, happy thanks to that. Well, I've, I've, the first garden of yours I ever set foot in was in Dar Alam, outside of Warzazat. Oh, did you? That yes. was the first time I'd ever been in one of your gardens. And to go back to something we were talking about earlier about the idea of just, to me, it looked like the sort of garden that already existed and the Kasbah Hotel was simply built in the middle of it. No, that's kind of you. And it's, it, it, but it was interesting when I arrived, the palm trees mm -hmm. were there. I moved some of the olive trees I don't know if you remember, there is a wider alley in between uh, the wheat field and a field of what we call luzerne, which is in English, uh, it's a trefoil family, which is very much used for cattle in those countries. Mm -hmm. It's called alfalfa in some yes, languages. Yes, alfalfa. Alfalfa. Right. So in between those two fields, there is just rows of iris and an alley, but that was not an alley, it's just by moving some of the olive trees in that area, because I moved them of, some of them of 10 meters, some of them of, uh, of three meters, but then it, it did an alley in between those two fields. And um, I had, that was an incredible experience actually, that place. But I wanted to keep it agricultural because it was too big to be a maintainable garden in a big scale and gardens are reduced in tiny little bits. It was so nice also to work with a wonderful Mohammed who always lived all his life on this land and uh, we started to work. I remember some winters which was absolutely awfully cold 
but I was l listening to him and I was learning to him because he was, he was speaking French, poor French, but enough to, to be perfectly understandable. And so he, he was explaining me when he was saying this and what he was doing with this and how he was cultivating that. And that's probably thanks to him that I wanted to keep the easy irrigation system still working for not all the cultures, but at least half of the base of that garden. And so that's why we redid the Sega because the owner of the place wanted to have water all year round while the Sega are just used for when the snow is melting in the atlas then we have some water and actually that place is irrigated only in spring because the natural flow comes and then the water goes from one plot to the other one but you're not keeping it totally for you but you're sending it to the neighbors too so when thierry said to me i want to have a circuit for me i wanted it to keep it open for the time where Everybody was receiving the water, but so the other property after the Dahalam was still keeping the water at this time. But the fact of wishing to have water all year round in those little canals, we had to go through pumps and through filters. And so I had to redo, they were just soil. So of course, there were plenty of soil moved by the water. And just to make it, to make the water cleaner when it's used, probably at the time you were there. I don't know. At what, do you remember the season you went there? I do not remember the season. I just remember thinking that it was incredibly lush. And I loved the agricultural aspect of it because it gave you as a visitor the idea of how beautiful agriculture can be. Yes, you're right. There were no concept behind all that in the way I wanted people to go around. And it's an artificial concept of keeping a bit of agriculture, but it's not a, a stupid... The, the plots I did, which are for the agriculture, are tiny, but they are the size, and the wheat is given to the people of the village, and the alfalfa is taken for the cow, which is behind the wall. So it's, it's not just an image, it has a function. And um, no, I had a lot of pleasure and I mixed in that place some images of true sophisticated, even if they're not sophisticated because it's not really well maintained, sophisticated gardens like in front of the Casbah. I have some olive trees which are on the lawn and which is a very garden-esque uh, idea, which is far away from agriculture, even if it's simple. So I have a balance in between the stupid vision of gardens made by city people, mm. and also a bit respecting, but that's, it's not only my vision, but it's thanks to that Mohammed. And I decided that the way he was watering his field was more interesting than the automatic way I would water my fields. Because all is working with gravity at the, the period where it needs. So we are just flooding the parcel where the wheat is, and then right. it goes back in the ground. 
And so it's still going on, but not on all the land of the garden. Mm-hmm. It's true. You always sound like you're always learning. I mean, I know you've been, you've, you've had your firm, what, 35 years now? You've been working as a landscape designer? I mean, any uh, normal person on earth would die if they were not learning. I mean, you die the day, you, you day you're not discovering something, I suppose. Again, in the fact of trying not to be on the side of a story, it's nice to be able to talk to the people as, as you do talking with your eyes to, the, to what is there. No, but that, I would say, I don't know if I really learned it because I knew how it was working, but it was so funny to be in a situation where people were doing things in a way and also, on the maintenance point of view, it's something I learned because it's very funny, but the garden culture is slightly different according to the place or the people and then the culture of the people. Japanese people are not gardening at all like we do, for example. And of course, we're not working something which is any kind of vegetable, but it's mainly vegetables in other culture because people need to be nourished. A garden is better maintained simply when people are doing their usual and ordinary gesture on a working gesture than something which is going to be imported and obliged. So it's good to listen to the people, to try to work with them and not trying to help to tell them that a good loan should be done that way. And uh, I mean, there is n- never one way of doing things. Louis, thank you very much for talking with us today and congratulations on the new book. It's beautiful. Thank you, Mitch. And it's always a pleasure to see your face again. <laughs> The ADS Theat is produced and edited by Diane Dragon and Emma Wartsman. Music by Circus Marcus. All rights reserved by Condé Nast. To reach us about this episode or any other episodes, find us on social media at ArcDigest or email us at letters at arcdigest.com. <laughs>